Welcome to the CGOB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, Ken Weeb of Sportsnet.ca drops by to talk about the prospect of an all-Canadian division and how the Winnipeg Jets might fit into that in 2021. We'll also talk to Hector Vergara of the Manitoba Soccer Association as we remember the late Diego Maradona on the podcast. From Scott Salmon, the Senior Vice President of National Teams, we're waiting on an update on what's happening with the Junior Selection Camp, and we got it today. Quote, following the confirmation of two positive tests among players at Canada's National Junior Team Selection Camp on Monday, Hockey Canada has confirmed that all players, coaches, and staff are considered close contacts and therefore subject to the mandatory 14-day quarantine period under Alberta Health Services, Order 05-2020. Hockey Canada will continue to abide by all protocols and guidelines set forth by the Government of Alberta and Alberta Health Services and will put a pause on all camp activities until the quarantine period is complete. And then, but that's basically the gist of it. And that means that, what is it, what's two weeks from today? That's the 9th of December. And they were hoping to have a lot more accomplished by the 9th of December than what is going to end up being the case. As we uh, bring in Ken Weave of Sportsnet.ca, Ken, we always knew that holding a hockey tournament, even in a bubble, in a pandemic, was going to be tricky and so far, that's exactly been the case for, for Team Canada here. Yeah, certainly as Christian. Uh, obviously, you know, <laughs> it's uh, going to be interesting to see and monitor how this goes. I, I think one of the biggest things to remember is one of the reasons that Canada went with the extended training camp uh, is because of the possibility of something like this happening. And as we're all finding out in our various occupations, uh, the beauty of Zoom, there will be, you know, Team Canada will have activities and they'll still be able to proceed but uh, you're right I mean their 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 timetable is getting pushed back but I mean I would say on the flip side they're not going to be that much further behind than they would be normally if things are in the clear by December 9th but uh, as you know as we all know uh, nothing nothing guaranteed on that front but uh, definitely interesting news coming and I mean it's obvious the tournament the tournament is uh, in, je- uh, in jeopardy. I mean, there's no guarantee it will proceed. Uh, all hockey fans hope that as long as it's safe to do so, that there will be a great event happening in Christmas time. But uh, this certainly will will put up a caution flag. There's no doubt about that. All right. So let's get to the National Hockey League and the fact that we're sitting here on November 25th, Ken, and we really haven't heard anything from the league about a 2021 season. Is that cause for concern for you? Yeah, I mean, we know that the, the, there's a little bit of pushback happening here between uh, you know the league and the NHLPA right now when it comes to deferred salaries and potential uh, rise in escrow and things of that nature. And, and we know the Players Association is, is unhappy about uh, about that after signing a six-year deal uh, back in July and the return to play. So, I mean, again, I would say that there's some certainly cause for concern, but you know, based on the conversations that that are happening around the league, I, I think. Both sides know that uh, there's not a lot of sympathy coming for uh, either side, and I don't think we would have a elongated uh, public relations battle happening here. I think both sides want to get back on the ice when it's safe to do so. Uh, so I do think that 
how we're gonna we're gonna see a season happening. But I mean that January first date is basically five weeks away. So I would I would be uh, you know I would be less optimistic about the possibilities of of that date being set for regular season games. I think the, the better target would be January fifteenth. But uh, on the flip side of that, both sides know that the you know the, the fewer number of games that are played means uh, that will certainly impact the revenues that will be coming in. So. I think we're going to see something in the next, you know, seven to ten days where both sides are going to come together and, and iron things out, and and there will be hockey. But I mean, as of right now, I, I don't think that the Jets would be exempt. Uh, I mean, I don't know this 100 percent sure, but I don't think the Jets could have their training camp before December 11th uh, under the current situation either. So I mean, I think we're all going to have to be patient, but I do expect there's going to, there's going to be some movement here in the next, let's see, uh, two weeks for a uh, for a point of reference. I've said since the start, since the NHL announced January 1 as a potential start date, that I, I've i said that should be written in pencil, not pen, and said it likely won't happen. We're looking at late January probably, and I think more than ever now that seems to be the case. Does this remind you at all of, of what baseball went through back in April and May about figuring out how many games and how many how much money per game players would be paid? Yeah, I, I really, I mean, there's certainly, uh, it's a natural natural point uh, of reference there as well. Uh, and I think what I remember most about that, you know, and being a big fan of the sport uh, in general, is that it just just wasn't being received well by the public. I mean, the pandemic was essentially just starting in March, but people didn't want to hear about, uh, you know, millionaires not being happy with taking a prorated salary during a pandemic. So I, I think that the league knows how important it is to be on the ice and, and to be visible like they were in August uh, in the bubble. I mean, we know that the ratings were down, but I mean, the NHL can't afford to, to lose a season like they did uh, during the lockout. And I think cooler heads will prevail. And I think both sides really will recognize that it's the pandemic that's kind of driving the bus here and, and creating these extraordinary circumstances. So, I mean, there's, there are some things left to sort out. There's no doubt about that, but, I think there is going to be hockey when it's safe to be played. And now does that mean there will be fans? I mean, I certainly don't know that it's going to be possible in Canada, but we know that the rules are a little bit different uh, in the States right now. But I mean, if, if those, if, if some of those teams in those cities down South can have fans safely, I mean, that's better for the game as well. So, I mean, I think you and I are both in the same you know position here. We want, we want, it would be, life would be better with hockey in it right now. And, Let's hope that we get to a point where that's something that we're going to be discussing further. And it'll be a lot more interesting talking about training camp than it will be about, you know, picking projections on when the season might start. That's for sure. I'm talking about escrow and it just kind of glazes my eyes over, I'll admit. But looking at the the rules in the States when it comes to fans, it might not be a good idea that they're allowed to have fans, but if they are, they'll take advantage of that. I, I can't see it happening here in Canada, but nonetheless, it's looking like from all reports that Canada or the seven Canadian teams will more than likely just play each other. And then once we get to the playoffs, we'll see what happens. But an all Canadian division as someone who has grown up watching hockey, who has loved hockey for a long time back to the days when, the division setup was a lot different than it is now, Ken. How enticing is an all-Canadian division for you? Yeah, I love it, Christian. I mean, for a year anyway. I mean, we always talk about it would be great to see more than just two games a season against teams like the Maple Leafs and the, and the Canadians, that's for sure. 
uh, I mean, just for myself, I mean, growing up watching the Smythe division, I mean, you always want more of that, uh, you know, those Alberta teams in Vancouver and, and things of that nature as well. So, uh, I mean, even a team like Ottawa, they're, they're, you know, there's still some growing pains ahead, but they're a team that's going to be on the rise. they got a good young team. So I think that all the matchups are really set up to be excellent. I mean, especially with the kind of summers that uh, teams like the Montreal Canadiens have had uh, in, in terms of free agency, I think it would be great to, to see those teams uh, rolling through town uh, a few more times during the year. That's for sure. And I mean, such a, you know, exciting run for, for, for a team like the Vancouver Canucks and even the Calgary Flames made a bit of a dent in, in what had been some tough playoff trials and tribulations the last couple of years. And we know the Jets are going to be motivated after two early exits. So, I mean, I, I for one, I, I can't wait uh, for the prospect of it happening. And I mean, it's not a guarantee yet, but all signs certainly pointing in that direction. And, I think it's going to just make for some fantastic hockey. That's for sure. It'll just be an interesting. Uh, the interesting thing will be to see if they go into kind of mini hubs early. Or I also let you know we mentioned baseball before. Uh, I know it's been talked about a lot uh, that there might be more of that uh, major league baseball style of schedule where you get a two or three game series with the team. And I think that would be a great way to ramp up some of the intensity, especially with some of those that that the Jets wouldn't see very often. That's for sure. Now. Where would the Jets sit in your perspective amongst the seven Canadian teams? Let's say that the way the playoffs are are figured out is the top four teams from each division, however they're divided up, get into a postseason. Would the Jets be in the top four in the Canadian division? Yeah, I mean, that certainly remains to be seen. It's a great question. I mean, I think that the it's funny. People were wondering, would the Jets be in a better position in the Central Division or in the All-Canadian Division? I think the, the, the truth of the matter, at least right now on paper, is that uh, to me, the Jets are a bubble team no matter where they're situated or what division they're in. I think they they have elite goaltending. They have high-end forwards. I think they have an improved defense core from last year. Uh, but they certainly need to get their special teams uh, cleaned up a little bit and uh, they're going to need some players to continue to, uh, you know, in, enhance their, uh, you know, what they've shown in the past. I mean, the Jets had a lot of players who had career years and had excellent seasons, and and they need a little bit more uh, growth and development from those guys. And uh, I think that their defense core is has the potential to be better than than a lot of people think. I mean, we see what Billy Hanela is doing right now in in Liga. Uh, he's he's been a real dominant force. You see what David Gustafson has been doing over overseas. I think he's a guy that will be right in the mix for a you know a job in that fourth line center position. And Christian Vesalainen is playing quite well in terms of the prospects. So, I mean, I think that the Jets are are a capable team. I think uh, you know there would be some areas that they still need to improve on, but I think this will be a hungry group. I think uh, again, and I also think that people should remember. I know that. A lot of people think, oh, well, the Jets lost in four to the Flames. Well, yeah, that's true. But that happened without two of their uh, top three forwards out of the lineup. Uh, one, you know, Mark Shifley took three shifts, and Patrick Laine didn't make it through the first game. So uh, I think this group has a really good core up front. And, I mean, if you got a Vesna-level goaltender between the pipes, and that's two of the last three years he played at that level, I think the Jets are going to be competitive and. Uh, I don't think that they would be the front runner right now in the All Canadian Division, but I, I do think that they'll be right in the mix in that you know three to three to five range. And the one thing that could be beneficial, or maybe not, depending on how Hellebuck plays, is yeah. we're only going to get I don't know forty-eight to fifty-five games, and there will be a lot of compressed scheduling, so they're going to need Lauren Persuade to be good, but. 
if he's hot, it's a shorter season, and if he's hot, then that could they could ride that more than they would be able to in an 82-game schedule. Yeah, that's a great point. We know that uh, Connor Hellbuck loves a, of a heavy workload, and that will that will still continue uh, in a compressed schedule. But you're right. I mean, Lauren Brassois is a guy who once again bet on himself, and he'll be looking to uh, rebound after what was a bit of a tough year last year. There's no doubt about that. He didn't play as well as he had the year before. But, I mean, there were some injury issues, and, yeah, there were a couple nights where uh, he had a tough go, but, you know, it was on a back end of a back-to-back. So, I think he's definitely a capable backup, and as we know, this is a guy who wants to be a starter in the NHL, and, and the best way to do that is by playing well and pushing his, uh, his goaltending partners. So I think the Persuade is going to have a, have a strong season, and, and we know that Connor Hellebuck is a very hungry individual, and he had an outstanding year and well-deserved it as a trophy, but we also know that he was uh, extremely unhappy with getting bounced in the qualifying round, and uh, I mean, outside of the you know the run to the conference final, you know, playoff success would be the next uh, next piece on the mantle that uh, Connor Hellebuck wants to take care of. Well, Ken, I appreciate you doing this, and hopefully, the next time we have you on, we have uh, some details and we can actually look forward to a training camp. Absolutely, Christian. Thanks for having me. Have a great night and a great show here. Uh, we learned earlier today that Diego Maradona, the Argentine soccer great, who scored the famous Hand of God goal in 1986, led his country to that year's World Cup title, had passed away today at the age of 60. And to talk about his life and his legacy, we're joined by Manitoba Soccer Association Executive Director Hector Vergara. Hector, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks a lot, Christian, for having us on. So how big a deal when he was playing in his heyday was Diego Maradona? Well, uh, he would have been the Wayne Gretzky of, uh, of soccer. You know, for people who follow hockey in Canada, in the world, um, Maradona, along with, you know, some of the other greats in the world, Pelé and Messi, Ronaldo, these, these names are at the top of, of, the, top of the, uh, the mountain when, I talk, when it comes down to talking about uh, the impact they've had and, and what they've accomplished um, in their careers and then the following that they have worldwide. I mean, we can go back to, with Maradona all the way back to 1978 World Cup. So, um, you know, if you want to get into those details, we can definitely do that. But uh, you know, he's uh, he's had a from the age of 17. I mean, a 17 year old who wanted to go to the 1970 World Cup in his own country, um, and you know, he he calls that one of his uh, greatest strategies, greatest tragedy in his career, uh, when Minotti, the coach at the time, uh, left him off the of the national team in 1978, and he wasn't able to play for his national team and in his own home country where they actually ended up you know winning the world cup um so it's um and from then you 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 know you count the world cups that he attended to and participated in and in every world cup there was something involving maradona you know that was the the interesting part about it you in in the interview uh, some people have talked about the, the 86 world cup and the hand of god but before that there was the clash between uh argentina in Brazil, which is a, a rivalry in South America, as you probably well know, uh, in 1982 World Cup in Spain, where where there was an uh, incident between Zico and, uh, and Maradona, and, uh, and uh, Maradona ended up being sent off by a Mexican referee, uh, and, uh, and that was the end of his, his World Cup in, in 82. And, you know, disappointing for him, who was a young man who wanted to be, uh, again, the 78 World Cup, and then 82 already, too, potentially would have been the second World Cup, but it was essentially his first. And then you, you, we head into 1986 and in the hand of God, and 
in the game versus England. And it's obviously not just that goal, but uh, in the same match, many people have said that he's scoring probably one of the best goals in, 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 the, in the World Cup history uh, when he took the ball at uh, midfield, essentially, and, and went through the English defense and scored a wonderful goal and, uh, you know, beating four four players or so and, and masterfully dribbling through them and, and, and no one could stop him, right? So he he captained the team, uh, lifted the trophy at the end of the day. He not only lifted the trophy as a World Cup champions, he also lifted the trophy as a Golden Ball winner. And so, I mean, he's had a, a fantastic career. And then in, you'll remember that he went to play in Napoli uh, in, in 84, 87. So when the 86 World Cup happened in Mexico, he was a, a Napoli player. And, and immediately after that, he went to Napoli and won the championship with Napoli. And, and he was the golden boy in Napoli. Um, the, the whole world revolved around Maradona in, in Italy. And he was a sensation and became a legend there. And that led to the 1990 World Cup, which um, was in Italy, <laughs> of all places. You know, and, uh, and by that time, Maradona had kind of fallen off a little bit with, uh, with the fans in, in Italy. And, uh, he, and, you know, he, he wasn't very well received. Argentina wasn't very well received in, in the 19 World Cup, in particular that Italy didn't make it to the final um, and that uh, Argentina did and played Germany uh, in that game. And again, another um, a lot of incidents happening in that World Cup, particularly when the national anthems were being played and and the Argentine national anthem was being booed by by the fans in Italy. And there's all kinds of stuff like that that happens. And you know, memorable moments that you you have ingrained in your mind because you've seen him on television. Unfortunately, you know, I didn't get to be on the field with him as I had with many others. But uh, but he has a, a very rich history. And when he went to Barcelona after the '82 World Cup, it was a world record transfer fee at the time of. $7.6 million, and then when he transferred to Napoli, it was another world record fee of uh, $10.48 million, and those numbers seem so small compared to the transfer fees that we see now, which are just unbelievably high dollar figures, but this is someone who, for you know the better part of a dozen years, was the soccer player internationally, right? No, absolutely, absolutely, and those transfers were huge fees uh, at the time, and you know, it's it's distinct in Barcelona after being in Argentina Juniors and Argentina and Boca Juniors as well. He's one of his beloved clubs is Boca Juniors and and uh, went to Barcelona. It didn't work out quite as good as he thought it was going to work out, but the Napoli experience also worked out. You know, it's interesting. It worked out very well, um, let's say, in football-wise, in the sense of uh, his uh, his achievements on the pitch. And it also worked out a little bit on the negative side in in relation to his you know personal life and uh, and the um, the impact that uh, the stint in Italy had on him and the pressures of playing for those uh, high level teams uh, you know sometimes uh, at a young man he's you know very young at that time um, it uh, it has an impact on your life and, and how you how you do things and and that eventually uh, I think. Uh, uh, contributed to what we are experiencing today, which is his passing, right, and um, and the sadness of his passing. But uh, there's no doubt in anyone's mind that you know an individual who who rose uh, to the to the top of the mountain from you know a very poor background, very poor family, struggling as a young man, and you know his dream of being a, a professional footballer with uh, sleeping with a soccer ball at the age of three and four and five and. Getting in trouble with mom because he's wrecking things and wrecking his shoes and wrecking his 
his uh, clothing because he's sticking on, you know, staying out at late at night. And, and I can tell you that because I not only, I mean, I'm, I come from South America and, and we, we lived like that. You know, that, that was the way, I mean, I'm not going to compare myself to individuals who are professional soccer players, but, but we see it, we ourselves, you know, the, um, copy them, try to be like them um, because uh, that, that was the way. I mean, for, for many, many professional players in the world that come from South America, uh, soccer is a religion. Uh, as it is in other parts of the world as well, uh, but particularly in countries that are that are poor countries, you know, people see football as a way out of the out of the um, the struggles of life, and uh, and, and see that, uh, and obviously he, he did that, uh, became uh, world renowned, and uh, I mean his his skill levels, both feet, you know, and the um, the lower center of gravity that he always had, very difficult to get him off the ball. Um, people had to resort to kicking, kicking them, you know, to get to get him off the ball. And and there's many experiences that he went through where where he was treated in a very poor fashion by by the opponents because he was so good. Um, you know that he not only was he a fantastic on free kicks, for example, he was an artist on the pitch. You know, he um, he made the players around him even better. And uh, and it's uh, in and again go back to the World Cups, even USA. You know, when when he was older, but then again, a negative experience with a drug test, and and then he was out of the World Cup in '94. In he even tried his stint at, uh, as a coach in 2010 when he coached the team um, and, and was eliminating the quarterfinals of the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. So, a very very rich career on the pitch and on the sidelines, um, and for sure a legend. Um, and I mean, you can only. You know, you can call his name out amongst the, the greatest in the, in, the, in the world. Many people say he's the best player ever. Uh, some people will argue that, you know, him and Pelé are one, one, two, or at any one day it could be the other way around. Um, and people like Messi and Ronaldo are, you know, people of today's age are are comparing themselves to individuals like Pelé and, and Maradona. So it's, it goes to show you. I mean, and he's... An individual who just transcended not only the, the the football world but also the political world. You know, you, you go back to thinking about the time when when they won the World Cup and he lifted the trophy in '86 in, in Mexico, same stadium that Pelé lifted the trophy in 1970. And um, and this uh, this accomplishment of his, you know, he often talks about the fact that it was revenge um, for the Falkland Islands War of 1982, where England and Argentina were were at war, where you know at odds with each other, and uh, they they still call the Falkland, Island, Falkland Islands the Las Malvinas in Spanish, and they also refer to them that way. So again, um, a fantastic career, and it's too bad that it has to come to a, his life to an end such a young age. You know, 60 years old is a very young age, and um, but he had personal struggles. You, we all know that too. I mean, it's just you know, his whole career is one side, and then you have the personal side, right? So. Mm-hmm. All the all the all the struggles, and they all started, you know, with with the experience abroad. Um, you know, the, the Napoli experience, for example. That you know, there's many documentaries about how he lived his life there, and uh, and the pressures of being in, in that environment eventually led to uh, to his downfall in, in many cases. Yeah, he allegedly began using cocaine in Barcelona back in 1983, and he battled that addiction for. A better part of, of two decades, he put on a lot of weight. Uh, he put his body through a lot, and ultimately, that's that's what led to where he was. He had brain surgery a couple weeks ago, and uh, had a heart attack today, and that's what uh, took his life at the age of sixty. But uh, Hector, before I let you go, just one of the 
things about soccer is that compared to other sports, you don't need to be the biggest person to succeed. And Diego Maradona was 5'5 and transcended the sport. What was he able to do at such a size that made him such a special player? No, he was fantastic on the ball. He was fantastic on the ball and powerful. Like for a young guy, he was a small guy, you know, uh, very powerful, very difficult to get him off the ball. He, he, was, he was able to control it and be able to. He was, you know, another player that was fantastic on set pieces, you know, free kicks is, is, is like a, almost a guaranteed goal. Um, so he he was uh, one of those unique players that, you know, uh, how many Wayne Gretzky's in the world do you see in hockey, right? And and again, how many Maradonas are you going to see? You know, you've got the Pelés, the Maradonas, the Messi's, the Ronaldo's, people like this, the, the crew of the world. Um, they're they're uh, they're not a player you're going to see every day. And um, and I mean, he he worked really hard at his trade. He he was he, he developed from a very young age, um, passionate about the game, played it uh, with a lot of love and. And uh, it, 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 it became so easy for him. I mean, an individual that played with both feet too, you know, it's it's not not it wasn't that easy to find players left footed. Main, main foot was left foot, and uh, and uh, and he he um, he became an, uh, a legend through through what he gave us, and and you know, people who were able to see him and had the opportunity to see him live, and and all of us who didn't get that opportunity but saw him on television and, and what he could do. It's very, very, extremely impressive. So, um, and and it's funny. You're, you're right. You know, we, they don't have to be this strong. The soccer players don't have to be the strongest and the tallest, and they don't have to be brute force. Right? It's not. It's, it's, it's a, there's a technique to play in the game, and if you master the technique, um, you know, people say you you need to master the techniques because you can always become faster. You can always become stronger. You can work on those things. If you're a good athlete, you can be, be you can do those things. But to to master being on the ball and be able to do things the way he used to do them, I mean, to be you know, ten years old being uh, being the showcase at halftime of a of a professional match. <laughs> Who does that nowadays? You tell me a you name a player that hasn't done that. You know, there's not many in the world that at ten years old they're in front of forty, fifty thousand people juggling the ball and for for a few more than just a few minutes and, and have that type of control. And that's the dedication that he showed for the game. And that's all he knew. I mean, that's all he wanted to do. He wanted to play football. Nothing, nothing else. So it's a fantastic, fantastic career, and it's it's, it's sad to see him pass away and. Uh, but he gave a lot to the sport and also created some controversy in the sport, which is, you know, sometimes is good. <laughs> Keeps everybody on their toes. And then he was one of those personalities that that would be um, that would speak up. You know, he, he wasn't an individual that would just go away quietly. He uh, he criticized players, he criticized coaches, um, and uh, you know, he was uh, a controversial person politically. And you know, hang around with individuals like Hugo Chavez in uh, Venezuela, for example. You know, and supported Fidel Castro. And, in Cuba, and uh, even when he was getting, when he was ill, you know, he went to Cuba um, to see uh, to see the doctors there because they he knew Fidel Castro personally. So there's all kinds of uh, different things about this man that uh, are, are impressive, and uh, some people like him, some people love him, uh, some people dislike him because of the, his personality uh, and the things he did off the field. But uh, you cannot uh, discount. The tremendous, um, the tremendous legend that he is on the field, on the field of play, as a footballer. Uh, a man, a player, unlike any other, and probably unlike any we'll ever see again. Hector, appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for this. No problem. Take care. Thanks a lot. Tune in to the CGOB Sports Show weeknights from seven to nine with me, Christian O'Mel, or you can download the podcast on iTunes. 
It's actually on iTunes now. Wow. If you got an Android, then I dig you're out of luck. But Apple products, you're good. So listen to the podcast. Please subscribe. You can rate it. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs>